Well, good morning again, and welcome to the teaching portion of our gathering. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 11. So hear these words from the Apostle Paul. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of and praise of God. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. So today we're starting a new series on the book of Philippians. And um, for those of you who've been tracking with us over the last several weeks, this is part of a larger uh, year of teaching on wholehearted community. And so I want us to kind of begin to develop and flesh out a vision for what it looks like to be a wholehearted community, a community that uh, is living out of a sense of uh, enjoying and having this capacity to know and to love one another, um, rather than being, impa- being impaired in those abilities. And so um, we're going to look at this letter of Philippians, which is really just kind of a, a vision for a wholehearted community. It's this sweet family letter that Paul, who was uh, a church planter and who planted this church in Philippi, an urban strategic city uh, in the Roman Empire, he's writing this letter in the early 60s Um, kind of as an older man, and he's writing under house arrest, and he's chained literally to a Roman guard. And he's writing to this group of people, this group of urban citizens who've come to know Jesus um, and are trying to work out what it means to be followers of Jesus in the complexity of a city. And it's one of those letters that, one of the few letters actually Paul writes where there isn't a strong rebuke for some kind of ethical or doctrinal moral issue. This is really a family letter written by kind of a father figure to these newer believers to encourage them just to remain faithful, keep up the good work is essentially what Paul's saying. And and it's this vision for this really deeply connected, um, uh, affectionate community, this wholehearted community. And so the question I want us to be asking, kind of the the lens through which I want us to look in the series, is what does this text, as we go through these verses in Philippians, teach us about what it means to become a more wholehearted community? Because there's a lot of different themes and things we could look at in this book, but I want us to look at it through that lens of what it means to become a more wholehearted community. What is God's invitation for you? What is God's invitation for me in terms of living more fully and freely from my heart, our hearts as uh, a relational community? And so I want to start with um, just a, a question. I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you've had this powerful shared experience that forges a bond. Um, and, it, and it kind of functions almost in our, in our lives, like our stories is kind of a conversion of sorts. Like my life was like this before this event happened, and then it was like this after this event happened. There's a before and after component. Um, this powerful shared experience 
that changes the way that you view yourself or view others or view God. Um, I hear this often um, with like cancer survivors. They go through cancer, they learn they have cancer, they get enveloped into this community of, of people who are going through cancer and have been through cancer and have survived cancer. And it's this very transformational thing that literally is like you're jumping into a story um, and, and it forges this new identity, gives you a sense of purpose, and your life's never really the same. Like you, you completely are transformed. I hear this oftentimes with athletics. If you've been a part of a sports team that's won a city championship or a state championship or has accomplished something significant together, maybe you've experienced this in the workplace. You've been a part of a startup or a, a turnaround, and you're in with these people, and you're chasing this dream, and you accomplish it together. Um, I've heard of people tell stories of this with weight loss, you get into this community and you lose a bunch of weight and, and it really changes everything about you. Maybe you've experienced recovery from some kind of uh, trauma or abuse or addiction and, and you enter into this very intentional community and it changes your identity and you begin to have a sense of purpose and meaning about your life. Uh, my wife uh, has run half marathons before. Um, some of you are marathon runners and you know it's like you don't just run a marathon, you're a marathon runner. You know, you don't just participate. It's like you enter into this almost like this cult where there's all kinds of training and you go to the event and maybe it's a Tough mutter is the kind of other example of this. Um, uh, some of the more famous examples that come to mind, one in particular that comes to mind, my son is in middle school and he's reading this book about Louis Zamperini. Louis was a pilot who uh, was captured and uh, put into an internment camp and then survived and went on to become uh, an Olympic uh, medalist, and, uh, and, and really became a follower of Jesus. And this experience in this prison camp completely and radically transformed him, and he forged these bonds with, th- with these other men and women that were also in this camp. And he emerged with a new sense of purpose and meaning that carried him well into his 90s. And I don't know if you've ever had that kind of life-altering experience, but it changes um, your identity and gives you a sense of purpose and, and catches you up in a story, and it provides kind of a uh, a framework for meaning and community and, uh, and a larger purpose for life. That is kind of, if you can kind of conjure up something like that in your life, that's kind of what Paul is inviting us into as we read these early verses of Philippians. Philippians 1 through 11 functions in this letter as kind of an overture um, of the symphony that's going to follow. And so he touches on all the major themes that he's going to hit on throughout the book of Philippians as a father writing to this community to continue to be Faithful. And one of the big ideas that I want us to just kind of land on, really the big idea I want us to camp out on today, is this idea of the church and wholehearted community as rooted in a vision of gospel partnership. Right? Gospel partnership should frame up how we see wholehearted community and how we practice wholehearted community. And so I want to point out um, this word partnership Paul uses twice in this passage, verse 5, as he's thanking God for this community. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Why? Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel. And those are very intentional words that Paul used as your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he goes on down to talk about it again in verse uh, 7. He says, you are all partakers with me. That's the same word there. You are partners, grace partners with me in this work, this gospel work that God is doing Um, Both among you, among me, among us, we are partnering with God and with one another in this gospel work. Now, this word partnership is a really interesting word. So I want to look at what is gospel partnership? What does it mean for a community to be, uh, for a a community of people to be gospel partners? This word partnership in the Greek is the word koinonia. And it's one of those churchy words that if you've been around like 
Quantania, like, you know, maybe like your church fellowship hall as a kid was named the Quantania Hall. Uh, we, we talk about it in terms of fellowship, but it's actually a much richer term than that. The word quantania means, essentially, it's a very active word. It means participation or a sharing in common of something. It has the sense of we are partners. Think of like a family business. We are in this family business together, centered on the gospel. And I think it means to Paul at least two things in reference to this community in Philippi. One, it means that we are co-participants in the transforming power of the gospel. We have this common, life-altering, converting experience where we have experienced the gospel. The good news is literally that word, euangelion, the good news of Jesus, the good news of Christ together. And Paul, man, throughout the book of Philippians, um, really um, camps down on this word gospel. Gospel is mentioned in this letter more than any other of Paul's letters. It is the dominant thing of the theme of the book of Philippians. I want you to understand what it means for us to be a, in a gospel partnership. Now, what's fascinating about this word gospel, um, the, the word euangelion in Greek, is that it's actually not a uniquely Christian word. This word was around before Paul and the writers of the New Testament started to use it, um, before Jesus even started to use it. It was a word that would have been familiar in antiquity and Greco-Roman context. This word actually was a political word, that was used to announce the good news of an emperor's birth or their reign or a military victory. And it's actually became synonymous over time and tied in really deeply with the imperial cult worship, like people worshiping the emperor as Lord. Caesar is Lord. Augustus is Lord. And so what Paul is doing in borrowing this term, terminology, at least in part, is subverting the idea that Caesar is Lord and replacing that with the reality that Jesus is Lord. So the gospel throughout the book of Philippians is not just a doctrinal proposition. It's not a doctrinal statement. It is a person. It is Jesus Christ as Lord over every area of our lives. And so Paul is saying um, we partner in becoming a community that is learning to surrender all of our lives to Jesus being our Lord rather than the dominant kind of themes and the dominant ideologies of the empire and Rome and the imperial cult. And so Paul begins this letter um, unpacking that reality and reminding them. This is the essence of gospel partnership. Paul and Timothy, verse 1, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who also happen to live at Philippi with all the overseers and deacons, the leaders in the church, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Paul takes what would have been a very common greeting, um, and, he, and, he, and he does a little gospel juke with this. He infuses it with a gospel-centeredness. He says, uh, whereas a normal letter would start with a greeting, which would have been Karen, C-H-A-R-I-N, not Karen the way we use it in pop culture now, but Karen, C-H-A-R-I-N, and he replaces it with charis, which is the word grace. Paul says, grace to you, right? Joy, pleasure, delight, favor, acceptance to you. This is the heart of the gospel is that God in his grace has come to us and he's given us unmerited favor. He says, grace to you, God's acceptance, his favor on you. This is what God came to do in Jesus Christ. He writes in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, not through achievement, not through anything that you could do, not through strategy, but rather through the purposes and the plans and the power and the presence of God, we experience grace. 
He also says peace. This is the word shalom, or in the Greek, arene, which means wholeness or flourishing that comes through the presence of God. Peace is not the absence of conflict, but rather the full presence of God in the midst of conflict with us. This is the idea of peace. It's this idea of wholeness or shalom or human flourishing. And he says we are a community that's experienced this grace, this peace that comes only through the Father's initiative in sending the Son to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we should have died, to rise again, to give us resurrection power. And all of that, he says in the book of Philippians, is applied by the working of the Spirit in us. So there's this Trinitarian understanding of salvation. And, and it's not just this abstract thing. This is like, these are real people. There's a real story here. If you want to read, it's a really beautiful story in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 gives kind of the backdrop to the planting of the church at Philippi. And it's this really unlikely group of people that are brought together in a supernatural way. I mean, it starts with the Spirit of God giving a charismatic dream or vision or revelation to Paul, where literally Paul is heading one way, and the Spirit says, no, I don't want you to go that way. He blocks Paul on his missionary journey, and he says, I want you to go to Macedonia, to one of the leading cities in Macedonia and the Roman Empire, and I want you to speak the good news about Jesus being Lord to those people. And through this dream, Paul then meets a cast of characters that form the, the foundation of the church, and they're a group of people that you would not put together, a, a a poor, demon-possessed slave girl, a wealthy Asian female entrepreneur, uh, Lydia of Thyatira, who was a dealer of, of uh, kind of linens and, and, um, and those kinds of things, and then a blue-collar prison guard, an ex-military dude. Like, Philippi was a city where they uh, resettled a lot of military veterans. And so um, this blue-collar prison guard, this poor, demon-possessed, oppressed girl, um, this, who, who was engaged in div- divination um, or like, you know, the reading of uh, fortunes. And then this wealthy female entrepreneur all converted to Jesus and they began to work out their salvation in this small little house church, um, likely that met at Lydia's house as they all in different ways respond to the grace of God. And what draws them together is not these secondary identities. It is the fact that they are a community that's experienced grace and peace. That's what it means to be in gospel partnership is that we are people who rally around, who our organizing principle is the grace and the peace and the mercy that we've experienced in Jesus Christ. I love um, the way that Paul says it here. He says, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. That order is super important. Notice he doesn't say the saints who are in Philippi who happen to know Christ Jesus. He says those who are in Christ Jesus. He's talking here about this new identity that's ours by virtue of experiencing grace and peace. 21 times in the book of Philippians, Paul is going to use this phrase, in Christ. What he's saying throughout the book of Philippians is Christ is your life. Christ is the sphere of existence within which you live. It is, he is what you share in common with one another. What you're participating in is life with, for, under, for the glory of Christ and your union with him, being in him and in his reality, in his body, is now the organizing principle of your identity. Every other part of how you identify yourself is now subservient or secondary to that reality. So whatever it means to be a Philippian citizen, which would have been very important uh, in this time, right? To be a Philippian citizen was a source of pride. I mean, this is a, a multicultural urban city, 
with all kinds of, just like we have, all kinds of tribalism and nationalism and, and, and classism and sexism and all these kinds of things that divided people and formed different stratifications in Philippi. And what Paul is saying and what he's inviting them to consider is that unity, how do you, how do you find unity despite all of these intersecting identities and secondary allegiances and loyalties? You know, I'm a, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm a, I'm a slave, I'm, I'm an elite, you know, like I'm a military person, I'm a, uh, a cultural fashionista. I mean, all these ways that we can identify ourselves, these, these identities that are secondary. Um, Paul says the way that we develop an identity first is in Christ. The most important thing about us is that I'm a Christian. I am in Christ. So yes, I am a, me speaking about myself, I am a Kentuckian. I was raised in Louisville, Kentucky, but I am a Kentuckian who is first and foremost in Christ. I'm a man, but more importantly than the fact that I'm a male is the fact that I'm in Christ. Now, does it mean that those things aren't important, right? Like I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm middle class. Like these are all parts of my identity. But what the gospel does is it comes in and it relativizes those parts of our identities and says that's not the truest thing about you. Now, we don't want to minimize those things. We don't want to ignore those things. We don't want to deny those things. Um, But um, the most important thing about me is that we are a community that unifies and organizes around our primary identity in Christ. I love the way that Michael Gorman, one New Testament scholar, um, refers to this community here in Philippi. He says it's a community of cruciformity. It's a community that finds its identity in um, being conformed to the image of Jesus. And that's Paul's really strategy throughout this letter is to say, consider Jesus Christ, the fact that you are in Christ, and then live out of that identity. Become who you are in your relationships with one another um, as it flows out of your experience in Christ. And here's what Gorman says. For Paul, the experience of dying with Christ, though intensely personal, can never be private. Fundamentally, Cruciformity means community, and community means cruciformity. Paul did not come merely to save individuals, but to form communities, specifically what we might call exclusivist, inclusivist, alternative communities of cruciform faith, love, power, and hope. These communities exclude allegiance to every other so-called Lord and God, but include people of all stations in life who confess and live Jesus as Lord thus challenging the values of their day by their very existence. They are communities formed by and into the countercultural story of their countercultural Lord. So to be in gospel partnership means that we are living in a new story, the story of Jesus, and then we're living out of that and allowing to permeate our very identity and to change the way that we see God, the way we see ourselves, the way we see one another. So we've had this common experience of being saved by the grace of God, being brought into the peace of God and placed into this community, which then leads to a purpose, right? Like gospel partnership is purposeful relationship. It's the ability to participate holistically in gospel work together. And that's one of the major themes of this book is Paul is, is remembering and thanking them for this work. That, that work there is a, a very important word. It's, it's a word that means energy, right? God's energy, his working in you um, is this work that's very practical. It leads them to, to share and to sacrifice general, uh, financially for one another. Paul describes that in Philippians chapter 4, Later on in the book, he talks about the kindness of them to share in this need that he had and how they were the only church. And and get this, I mean, this is a very poor church, 
But out of their poverty, Paul says, you, time and time again, entered into a financial partnership. You were partners with me in giving and receiving. And over and over again, you met my needs. And he prays, God, I pray that out of the abundance of your riches, that as they have met my need out of their poverty, that you would continue to meet their needs in the midst of suffering and impoverishment. I mean, what a compelling vision for gospel partnership, right? It's such, a, it's such a radically different way of thinking about community than the way we often think about community now. I mean, to me, to be a part of a purposeful community, this quantity, this partnership where we are participating in the life of God, and we're doing that to advance the life of God throughout the world so that our friends and our neighbors can come to know Jesus as we're living as this cruciform community, constantly dying to ourselves so that others might live, giving up and emptying ourselves, Paul will go on to say, redirecting our power and our privilege um, for the sake of others, living in humility as we're being conformed to the image of Christ. This is the kind of partnership that Paul invites us to experience. And it contrasts with the way we often think about community now. There's a recent study done by Harvard Divinity School uh, in this study called How We Gather. And they were talking about how younger people are leaving the church in droves, and they're looking for community. Like this desire for community hasn't stopped. They're just not looking to have that desire met in the church. And so they're forming community in, in places like CrossFit gyms and in soul cycle groups and in neighborhood dinner parties. But the reality is um, what's happening in those communities is so based around affinity or proximity or likeness but it doesn't challenge the prevailing norms and values of dominant culture. And so uh, people end up living in the same kind of brokenness in community that they would outside of those communities. And it's not a compelling enough vision that, that really has the ability to change the world. And so Paul is giving us here a, 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 an insight into what it looks like to be a radically countercultural community of cruciformity. And I think that is how we have to see wholeheartedness is really arising out of um, our commitment to Jesus and our commitment to one another being in Christ together. So that's, that's the vision for gospel community. The question is, what is it that Paul gives us that actually can sustain that community? Because that kind of community is hard, right? It sounds really good to have all of this diversity um, and to pursue unity, but man, it's so hard if you've ever been in a situation where you're trying to live that out in a discipleship group. You're trying to live that out over a long haul uh, in a family or um, with some friends. It is so, so challenging. And I want to draw your attention to what Paul says sustains this kind of gospel partnership in verse 6. He says, I am sure of this, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible that often gets lifted out of context and applied in all kinds of weird ways um, to our individual salvation in Jesus Christ. And there is a sense in which, yes, Paul is talking here about sanctification, about the work of being conformed to the image of Christ. But notice it's in the context of community that Paul says, I can be confident in this community because I know this is God's work. And this is the key to understanding and sustaining gospel partnership. It is a confidence in God's presence and power to do this work, right? And, and this confidence that we have in God is the anchor point for wholehearted community. This confidence is this weird paradox of like hopeful realism, right? Like Paul is hopeful for them, but he's also realistic about the challenges they face as a community. Now, what do I mean by that? 
I mean, the hopefulness is like, this is God's work. This is what God's doing. Paul says, I am confident that he who began this good work, it was God who saved you, God who brought you together, God who chose the, the church community that you would be in to put Lydia and the Philippian jailer and the demon-possessed slave girl all together. Like, only God could do that. So this is God's work. And there's a hopefulness to us as we look around ourselves in community and we see all of the unfinished symphonies that are our relationships with one another, all of the incompleteness, all the messiness of true, diverse community, um, it, can get easy to, it can be easy to get cynical. And what this hopefulness drives us towards is like, I'm placing my confidence in God, not in you, but in God's work in you. And you're placing your confidence not in me, but in God's work in me. And it means that I refuse to give up on you. I refuse to in shame condemn you or judge you or drive you out. I see the glorious future that God has for you, and I want to participate with God. I am partnering with God and you in preparing you for what he calls here the day of Jesus Christ, the day when Jesus returns and he makes all things new. But there's a realism to that, right? There's a hopefulness, but there's a realism. It doesn't mean that we avoid hard conversations or that we just accept immaturity with one another. I mean, even in a great community like Philippi, there are relational undercurrents of hostility and rivalry and selfish ambition and conflict even between two leaders, we learned in chapter four. And so Paul says, God is at work in you. And yet the realism in chapter two, Paul says, and since he's at work in you, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So God is at work in you and he will bring it to completion. He will fulfill his purposes, but it's going to be hard. And, and, I, and I think we need to live in that kind of grounded confidence, this hopeful realism, because it is so easy to get cynical about the church. It is so easy. We live in a time and a moment where everybody is deconstructing the church. Everybody is tearing down the church. We have a lot of arsonists out there that only see the pain. They only see the church through the lens of its flaws and its failings. And so there's all kinds of deconstruction happening. Some of it good, right? Like doubt is not always bad. There's renewal that can happen in the midst of deconstruction. And we need to be a place where it's okay to doubt and it's okay and safe to ask hard questions. But we don't want to be a community characterized by this cynicism and despair and deconstruction and all these deconversion stories. I'm sure some of you may be familiar with the stories of well-known Christian authors and, and artists like Joshua Harris or the Hillsong artist Marty Sampson that are getting on Instagram and saying, that's it, I'm done with God, I'm no longer a Christian. And, and they begin to get cynical in the midst of their doubt. Rather than seeing the future glory of the church, they only see the present problems and pain of the church. And the question for us is like, do we as a church want to be arsonists or do we want to be architects? Do we want to just tear it down or do we want to be a part of rebuilding what God is doing um, in the future? And so um, Michael Kruger, who's a, a, an author online, has kind of pointed out like there's a kind of typical narrative to how these deconversion and deconstruction stories go. And this is easy. Like, if you're not careful, these kind of narratives can really creep in and, and distort the lens through which you look at the church. He says, step one to a deconversion story is to recount the negatives of your fundamentalist past. And you kind of learn to rehearse the litany of all the ways that your church failed you. Step two, position yourself as the offended party who bravely fought the establishment. Step three, portray your old group as overly dogmatic while you're just a seeker asking questions. Step four, insist your new theology is driven by the Bible and not a rejection of it. And step five, attack the character of your old group and uplift the character of your new group. Man, I see this time and time and time again. It's so easy to allow ourselves to get cynical 
about the church. And what people are often deconstructing is not the wholehearted community we see in the Bible, not the true church that we see uh, Paul writing about, but is actually just a very narrow, rigid, kind of modern, flimsy version of that, um, rather than what uh, Paul's vision is here for community. So our confidence in community is not in ourselves, it's in God. That's what sustains community, and we need not only that confidence, but what I'll call eschatological practices to support that kind of grounded confidence. And by eschatological, I just mean the eschatology, like the study of in the end things or the fulfillment of all things. And what Paul is always doing um, in his writing is he's pulling the future into the present. Let's live as if these future realities are actually true now, and let's establish practices um, that help us kind of live into this grounded confidence that we have in God's work in our community. And sometimes I think we miss these practices that Paul talks about, and we pay attention to Pauline theology, but we miss his method and his practices. These practices are brilliant. I mean, they're brilliant, and you see them all throughout the Bible. And I just want to point your attention to a couple as we begin to head towards close here, um, a couple of practices that I think we need to live into also as a community. I think this is one of the great leadership uh, things that Paul does is he gives us these simple practices that help us live into uh, this reality. And so a couple of practices that we see. Um, notice Paul's language, like his speech, how he talks about and he talks to the Philippian church, right? His language is so encouraging. It's so hopeful. Paul is calling them to live into who they are. Notice his language, um, both about how he talks about himself and also how he talks about the church. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ, servants, bond servants of Jesus Christ. Don't think slaves in terms of American Western chattel slavery. Think uh, in terms of Greco-Roman times when people would, cons- they would sell themselves into slavery because they had a debt to pay off. And they were considered, literally, they were owned by these people as they sought to pay off their debts. This is the idea of slavery here. It's, it's something that um, it communicates like, I am, I'm underneath somebody else. I am, I'm living for and on behalf of someone else, right? Paul refuses to identify himself as, I'm the person in charge. I'm the one with all the power, right? I'm not just the guy with power, Paul says, I serve a higher, higher power, and my power is redirected to serve you. And Paul calls them saints. He, he says, grace and peace to you, right? He's, he's using language. Saints is the idea of God's holy people, right? He, he addresses them throughout the letter in these very um, future-oriented ways. He calls them his beloved, right? He says, grace and peace belong to you in Jesus Christ. I love the way that Henry now, we have to learn to talk about each other in these kinds of ways. And I'm not saying we literally say, hey, Saint, nice to see you today. Although that might be a welcome change to some of the ways that we talk about each other in the church today. But I do think we need to recapture this vision for and watch the language we use as we talk to one another and about one another. I love the way that Henry Nowen talks about this. He says, the characteristic of the blessed ones is that wherever they go, they always speak words of blessing. It is remarkable how easy it is to bless others, to speak good things to and about them, to call forth their beauty and truth when you yourself are in touch with your own blessedness. Many of us don't speak encouraging, hopeful words about each other because we don't think those things about ourselves. We live in so much shame, so much guilt, so much fear. We live with a sense of being cursed, not with a sense of being blessed. But the Bible says we are God's beloved children in whom he's well pleased. And if that is true about us, we need to learn to speak those words and to call forth those identities and to draw out those realities in the way that we speak about and talk to one another. The second thing we see is uh, prayer, right? Like 
Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. What do we remember when or if we bring each other before God in prayer? We tend to remember and recall as human beings what's most intense and oftentimes what's most negative in our experience with, experiences with other people. It's the way that we're wired in many ways. And this, again, can lead us to a place of cynicism. As we remember one another, as we think about one another, um, even as we're scattered right now, we have this opportunity, though we're physically scattered, to remember one another in prayer. We can do that every day. We can hold one another in prayer. But what do we remember when we remember each other before God, do we remember a narrative that undercuts God's redemptive work in our hearts and our relationships? This person did this to me. They, and we remember the hurts. We remember the pains. We remember only the betrayals. We remember only the bad things. We remember only the immaturities rather than seeing the full picture of all that God wants to do um, with us, remembering that God who began this good work will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. And this is a real opportunity, again, we have right now to remember one another, to press into deep intercessory prayer for one another all the time, always remembering each other and working out those in our prayers, contending for one another, remembering God's work in one another as we also wrestle through the, the hard relational stuff in community. I mean, for me, it's been an opportunity day in and day out as I wrestle through uh, different things happening in my life taking walks or going on runs uh, just become opportunities for me to uh, bring these hard conversations before God and say, God, would you transform this? God, would you redeem this? God, would you help me remember, not selectively and cynically, but rather remember these saints that you've placed around me redemptively, right? Remember and pray for them redemptively, which then leads quickly to the third point. It, It should stir up compassion in us. The third practice Paul talks about here is compassion. He says, it's right for me to think this way about you, to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. That word affection is one of my favorite Greek words. It's the word splankthon, which is just like a cool word to say. And it literally means these affections that arise from my guts, literally from the entrails. It is a compassion and empathy that springs and, and causes me to, to hold you in my heart, to hold you close, to yearn for you, to desire with all the affection of Jesus Christ, to have this interior connection that touches the core of who I am um, and results in this relational and emotional connection between people. This is a word that was often used of Jesus throughout the Gospels. One of my favorites is in Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus looks out at the crowd and he has compassion on them. That's the word splagnizomai. He has compassion on them. It leads him to, to weep for people. It leads him to be angry uh, when people's well-being is threatened. I mean, I think for us, we struggle in the church oftentimes being disconnected from our hearts. If Paul were writing today to the church, many of us would have uh, a different version of this. We might say we don't hold others in our hearts, but we rather hold them in our heads. We have a very intellectualized, rationalized, logical way of thinking about and interacting with one another in the church. And the invitation is to be relationally and emotionally connected. Psychologists call this 
empathic attunement. It's one of the keys to healthy relationships is, is empathy, right? Compassion and empathy are very similar. It's the ability to take others' perspectives. It's the ability to hold one another in, without being judgmental. It doesn't mean we don't judge um, things that people are doing as right or wrong, but rather we don't condemn, we don't shame one another. We, we have the ability to recognize and communicate emotionally and feel with people, right? It's very different than sympathy. Sympathy um, is like empathy, but it's not the same thing, right? We think of uh, empathy or compassion oftentimes. Brene Brown in her book uh, on uh, wholeheartedness talks about this idea of empathy versus sympathy. If somebody's in a deep, dark hole, uh, empathy climbs down the ladder into the hole and says, hey, I'm here with you. I am with you. I am for you. I want to feel and hear and listen to your story. Sympathy stands at the top of the ladder, she says, and it, and it yells down and says, oh, man, stinks that you're down there in that hole. Do you need a sandwich, right? And, and that's kind of how we oftentimes treat each other is that situation looks really bad, and I'm sorry that you're going through all that pain, but we don't enter in with one another compassion. We don't hold each other in our hearts together because that's a space of vulnerability. That kind of vulnerability puts us in touch with our own emotions, with our own fragility, and we're afraid oftentimes to draw near to each other in compassion because we have so much shame, so much sadness, so much fear, so much brokenness. And when we consider and we hear other people's stories of suffering and sin, it kind of activates our own stories. And, and rather than moving towards one another, we move away from one another and we want to keep a healthy distance. It's easier to hold them in my head and analyze them or judge them or rationalize or reduce them down to something rather than drawing near. And man, we long, we long in a broken world for the compassion of others. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever had this experience of just being in relationship with others or being in a community and you share something really deep and really personal and everybody's just quiet. Nobody moves towards you. Nobody moves in with compassion. And man, there's just a, a deep sense of aloneness and disappointment that we experience when we don't, when we aren't compassionate towards one another. Empathy and compassion drives connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. And so God wants us to learn to, in compassion, hold one another in our hearts with all of our complex humanity and beauty and brokenness. And rather than judging one another, drawing near to them, and, and consequently, then drawing near to God in my desires, in my longings, in my emotions, and asking God to make those connections with one another. So compassion is a big part. And then finally, growth in love. Paul ends this with inviting them. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, that it would overflow that you would approve what's excellent, that you would grow in a kind of love that has knowledge and discernment so that you can approve what's excellent and be filled with the fruit of righteousness, or that word can also mean justice that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God wants us to have this mindset of growing in love. Even this community who did a pretty good job at loving one another, Paul says, we can do more. We can grow in love. And I, and I want to just bring this to a conclusion by just asking, why does it matter? What, what's the outcome of this for our community? And I think that the real key word that Paul's going to take through the rest of Philippians is this word joy. Paul says, I want you to do this, and I want this to be for your joy, for my joy. I want us to experience in our gospel partnership the joy of God together. I love Marie Kondo. I don't know if you watch any of her specials on Netflix. She's become somewhat of a, of a Netflix uh, hero. She's a Japanese organizing consultant, helps people declutter their lives and in her documentary, Tidying Up, she asked this question. She has people pull all their clothes out of their closet, throw them on the bed, and she asked this question, uh, does it spark joy? 
And if the answer to the question is yes, you keep the article of clothing or the piece of furniture. If the answer is no, you get rid of it. And man, I want us to be asking that question here in a Marie Kondo-like way, but with a much deeper sense of a joy that transcends circumstances and calls us to the real vision of joy, which is joy in our gospel partnership together. What is it that sparks joy for you? And Paul's answer to that question, according to the book of Philippians, would be, it's this community. It's this wholehearted community. That is what sparks joy for Paul. That is what should spark joy for us as we look to Jesus together and we experience the joy and the grace and the peace that's available to us in Christ. And as we practice a grounded confidence in him and as we live into these eschatological practices of prayer and compassion and growth and love and these other things that we've talked about here today, um, our language and our speech and how we talk about and to one another. This should increasingly mark our lives together that this gospel partnership creates joy. It's a joy to be together. It's a joy to be for one another. It's a joy to grow in Christ together. That is the foundation upon which the rest of this book is going to be built, a joyful gospel partnership, participating in the life of God together and then extending that life out to others and challenging one another to live and to grow into the love that God wants us to have for one another in Christ as this cruciform community of cruciformity. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion together. Father, thank you for the grace of community. Thank you for this vision that Paul invites us to of a wholehearted community in Jesus. I pray um, that we would live into this, that we would be um, a, a band of gospel partners um, united around the good news of Jesus. In Christ Jesus, we have become uh, this, this beautiful, radically transformed community. As we experience this, as we share in this partnership, and we, we learn to speak accordingly uh, with one another, we learn to hold each other in our hearts and have compassion for one another, to pray for one another, to grow and abound and overflow in our love. God, I pray that you would produce true, lasting, sustainable joy. God, I pray that, that this, these relationships that we share together in community would spark joy, and not just a happiness that is superficial, um, like, you know, uh, the, like simplicity or, or kind of decluttered living, but a true and deep and abiding joy that carries us through our life together in Christ Jesus. And so we pray for these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.